Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Benjamin Farr of Top Leaf Farms to talk about his experience with ecological design and the Urban Seed Project. Farmer Ben is an ecological farmer and builder. He has spent the last 18 years learning alternative ways of food production based on nature's design. He has managed and operated a number of farms, including Ocean Sog Organics in West Sonoma, and was the farm supervisor at Esalen Institute in Big Sur from 2008 to 2010. Farmer Ben received his BA in Echo Dwelling and is a registered teacher with Tagari since 2007, having taught over 30 permaculture design courses in California, Costa Rica, and Mexico. He has been a delegate at the Slow Food Gathering Terra Madre and continues to explore the social and ecological ethics that surround our food system. Now an urban transplant, Farmer Ben is excited to design and develop integrated systems that focus on food production, seeds, and starts, specifically for urban climates. Welcome to the show today, Farmer Ben. Hey, Greg. It's uh, great to be on the, on the show with you. Thank you for being here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path that you took to where you're at today? Oh, absolutely. It's been a, a, a very, very long and hard and adventurous and spontaneous and, <laughs> I love and dynamic path. Sounds yeah, very been, permaculture. Been, yes, very, uh, very holistic in the sense of um, learning as we grow. And, and I started, you know, not on a farming path per se, um, but on a building one. I started mm-hmm. framing houses with my dad when I was 14 up in Idaho and you know, fell back on that when I, um, after a year in college, uh, I decided that I didn't want to just go into debt figuring out what I needed to do, but I'd rather enroll in the University of Life and major in direct experience. <laughs> and so <laughs> How I, uh, cool is that? but I needed to make, you know, need to make some money. So I, I fell back on my carpentry skills and, um, 
very quickly realized that the consumption um, aspect of, of the construction world was not oh, feeling right inside. Yep. Yeah, there was an intuitive, intuitive aspect that kind of led me um, to inquire more deeply about what I wanted to be doing with my life. And it was hard work, and I enjoyed it, but uh, it, it led me to think about growing things. And so I started, um, I actually got a job building a farm out in Carmel Valley for, for a friend, someone who became a dear friend and mentor, mm-hmm. um, John, John Kinder, who recently passed away. But he had this farm that you would not put a farm on, <laughs> the top uh-huh. of a mountain, beautiful site. And that, you know, I fell in love with uh, growing food. And I, shortly after that, I heard Penny, Penny Livingston Stark at the Bioneers Conference in 97 oh, yeah. speak, about, um, yeah, speak about permaculture. And I'd heard the term, but not really been um, introduced to it. And mm-hmm. her presentation was very inspiring. And it made me realize that I didn't have to necessarily choose between growing and building, but there was actually a whole world out there that was very inclusive of seeing how all the pieces fit together. So I, I began my, my journey doing my permaculture design course in 99 at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, and later uh, went on to study with Brock Dolman there for a number of years, assisting him in about, it was about eight or nine permaculture courses along with Penny. And then um, going through Tagari and the Permaculture Research Institute to be a registered teacher and start teaching some courses on my own um, and farm the whole time farming and learning and putting the practices uh, and techniques in, into real life experience. And that, you know, led to these experiences being up at, in West Sonoma at Ocean Song and then down in Big Sur and managing some really amazing uh, projects. But I, I realized that I'm... I still have a lot of experience uh, to learn from and to put more of the um, techniques into practice. So I, I've stopped teaching and really have have focused in on putting this information that I've learned into practice. So that's uh, currently where I'm at, just taking a big step back and, and really seeing how to make the least change for the greatest effect with the work that I am doing in combination with nature and, you know, p- applying these principles and ethics, but also looking outside the permaculture lens, because as we know, permaculture is really just a assemblage of a lot of other techniques and tools and people's uh, ideas and concepts and just collected into one context. Um, but some of those things, as far as like broad acre key line design or natural farming techniques or different uh, different ecological design that permaculture pulls from, I've really started to look more into those, those, those attributes and see how, how I can um, expand upon them more than what permaculture was some, sometimes limiting me because it kind of gets, uh, as, as, as people in the permaculture movement know, it does tend to at one point become a permacult where people <laughs> yeah. fall into their, <laughs> fall into a, a certain um, clique and, and well, then, exclude themselves from other right, other, but then it's uh, not permaculture, right? That's what that's what you would say, and yet it's a it's a you know I've, I've attended the international convergences and have hosted and organized a lot of permaculture convergences here in the Bay Area, and um, even though our intention is to be as inclusive and expansive as possible, um, there's certain I, I I've found that there's certain practices and patterns in permaculture that naturally. Uh, tend to to limit the the 
I don't know how to say it correctly, but just the the encompassing of everything. Even mm-hmm. though permaculture is promoting that, yeah. there's certain patterns that have been set up that limit the expansiveness of it. And it's it's, it's hard to articulate, but um, yeah, no, it's just an ob- observation. Yeah, observation that I've that I've observed. And so I think it was mostly when I started traveling internationally and seeing how permaculture in certain places like Africa was being applied and very successful and and then looking in other places in India and where it's being applied and, and used but there were other movements um, that were much larger and much more impactful mm. and having huge ramifications like northern India like watershed restoration of like whole river systems and hundreds of you know or tens of thousands of farmers coming back to re-inhabit the land through what through a permaculture sense, you'd be like, oh, this is definitely applying the permaculture practices and principles, right. yet they're not calling it that, and yet the impact is, as far as greening the desert, huge, huge impact, and yet it's not even discussed or or brought into the permaculture community, and so it's like, why is that, and why is La Via Campesina, one of the largest peasant movement, farming movements in the world, um, not in, in, not included in the in the permaculture conversation or in the outreach or in the networking and and even here in California the Latino community is is not uh, you know a, a huge component of it even though they're growing and doing most of the work mm-hmm. here you know so just like looking at the and asking those questions as a good permaculturist would <laughs> yep. you know why and observe and, and say okay why isn't this happening and how can I how can I step back again and and have that thoughtful and protracted observation of where to find the point of leverage and how to work with the the, the ecosystem of our, <laughs> our social system, you know. So just make I sure you said ecosystem, right? Ecosystem, yeah. It's uh, it's a term that you know Brock uh, Dolman again. He he's termed a lot, and other people have used as well. You know, we have all this e- ecosystem restoration that we have to do, but. Uh, the ecosystem restoration is yeah. is one of the the more I think um, pressing issues of our time right mm-hmm. now, especially as we see the effects that our designs and implementations have had on the on the ecosystem through that will and push and drive to place designs on top of or build on top of of systems. So. Yeah. I'm I'm in the urban environment now. Like I said, transplanted. I definitely feel uh, new roots growing, and um, and it's mostly due to the love of my life. My wife, who's who's recently um, brought a lot of these social ideas and awareness about, and, uh-huh. um, and she's she's a doctor and also a musician here in in San Francisco, and wow. and the cultural edge and the diversity and the just the life force that's that's humming in the city is much different than, you know, uh-huh. 30, 30 miles outside of it oh. where, where a lot of farming and down or down in Big Sur or yeah. something. So, the, so just, um, that, and that's where she thrives and realize if, if she thrives, I will thrive and our family will thrive. So we're, we're <laughs> Smart here. Man. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's been a, it's been a, a huge, a huge lesson to, yeah. to, um, to grow into, but the roots are, are are taking root, and I realize that you know, I need to build a, a build a farm if I'm gonna, if I'm going to thrive here. Yeah. So that's what that's what um, how Top Leaf was was born out Perfect. of. The, in, yeah, we call those urban farms. Urban farms. <laughs> urban farms. <laughs> you are now an urban. I dub you an urban farmer. 
Farmer. Oh, well, thank you, sir, Greg. <laughs> Absolutely. So a couple of things about your intro we got to kind of touch on. Uh, people talking about permaculture, I ask them to define it. What is permaculture? Permaculture to me is, like many say, an assemblage of conceptual components um, arranged in a way for sustainable human habitat. And there's definitions from the book and ways that we live by the ethics and the principles. For me, I really, I really see permaculture as a way of life. It's a way to live in balance with nature's ecosystem. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. I, I like to say the art and science of working with nature. So how can we get in the flow and work with nature? Mm -hmm. So you also talked about PDC, Permaculture Design Course. So let's talk about, give me 30 seconds on what a permaculture design course is, because I'm, I'm really for having all of our listeners out there getting out and doing a PDC. So can you tell them what they, you know, what they'd experience or what the structure is? Yeah, it's a, a PDC is a, is an intro, really. It's a 72 hour um, drink from a fire hose. <laughs> you're, 72 you're getting... hour. Yeah, it's, it's, it's classically put together in 72 hours. The curriculum is based off of the designer's manual that Bill Mollison wrote in 88. And it is a very comprehensive look at how uh, nature works and how we can use appropriate technology, indigenous wisdom, in a way that can work with nature to create a sustainable life and that we don't... Uh, end up being the reason of our own demise. So it's a, it's a response to the unsustainable pattern of development that we've, mm -hmm. that we've had. And it's a design course that's, that's designed to awaken and inspire and, and, and educate people to participate in a way that is more in line with the natural ecosystem that we, that we live in. And so it's, it's very, uh, it's, it, it's, it's very broad in a certain context so that it can be applied to any ecosystem, any bioregion and any culture. There's no, there's no prescribed religion or dogma and the social system is, is, is very short compared to the visible structures that it teaches, mostly because there's so many, there's such different um, types of cultures that can apply it to it that we wouldn't want to prescribe a certain way to live by except for these basic ethics of earth care people care and fair share which are kind of a life ethic of how we can uh, take care of the earth make sure we take care of each other and then whatever surplus that's generated from our design we can invest back into the other two so that it can create a a, a cyclical pattern of abundance rather than scarcity Perfect. So you said 72 hours. You also said intro. Yeah. Really? It like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, you know, it's like you look at, um, you know, yoga trainings, for example. Oh, yes. It's like 200-hour yep. yoga training. Right. And this is, a, this is a, a lineage of, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And in 200 hours, are you then a, uh, you're a certified yoga instructor, but you're, still just learning right. the very basics of, of that of ancient yoga. lineage. And so if we look at nature and how long the design has been in place and the patterns has developed from eons and millennium, and it's like evolution in the making, it's the apex, it's the climax of all of evolution is now. Um, granted, we have these extinctions and patterns and cycles that have 
brought us to what we have now, but it's still building upon itself in that yeah. succession of evolution. So, you know, it's to understand the complexity of that. When I said drinking from a fire hose, it's yeah. also like going <laughs> down this main this main river, and we're just looking up these canyons that later you'll come and explore. So, right. for example, keyline design is, is touched upon in the earthworks and water management component, and it's looking at how to read the landscape to understand where water collection meets water dispersal. So as we start to do earthworks, we're working with the natural pattern of the earth. That is usually covered in maybe a couple of hours or an afternoon <laughs> exactly. of the design course. Uh -huh. And I, I had the pleasure of uh, taking Darren Doherty's um, oh, key line uh, key design, design course. course. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The very, the very first one in 2007 when Wes Rowe brought him out to, yep. to California and it was a seven day Keyline design course. So it was taking that two, three hour afternoon canyon, as you called it, canyon, as you called it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and really expanding it yeah. into a seven day. And still it was like, wow, there's still so much more here to, to dive into. So, oh, yeah. you know, it's a lifelong journey. And I think a lot of people, um, when they take a PDC, they then feel empowered to go out there and start practicing and teaching. And really they, in, as it was prescribed, Take you know, take a couple of years and and put it in practice and understand. Work, and find a mentor, learn with someone. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's in some ways a prerequisite for being human to look at uh, at the context of this system of nature system and mm -hmm. ecosystem and how we can then participate in a way that's more regenerative than degenerative. Yeah, some of my favorite words: regenerative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the buzzwords in permaculture definitely yeah. are, are there. And, you know, I could probably rant there a whole, <laughs> yeah. a whole rap on, on them, and people do. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's one of the, the, the issues that sometimes isolates the permaculture right. community from others, like I was it's talking about earlier, yep. is that they start speaking in these terms that people don't necessarily understand because they're so broad, and yet they have meaning, and they do right. speak to something specific, but yet... Um, Sometimes the people people go through a course and they they get really inspired about food forests and stacking functions and and seeing the least change for the greatest effect and they start using them in their vernacular and we're encouraged because then that's how we learn mm -hmm. and yet they sometimes lose sight of the actual meaning behind it and are, can't articulate what they mean when they say stacking functions or right. what they mean when they say you know um, the opportunity the the, the problem is an opportunity yeah. or these different principles. I'll tell you, when I did my first permaculture design course in 1991, it was a game changer for my life. I was, I, you yeah. know, I, I had a sore forehead where I kept smacking myself saying, oh my gosh, this is what I've dreamed about all my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would turn that around, you know, and say like, wow, is what, what is it in that that really sparks yeah. that awareness, you know, and is it the, is it the techniques and the, and the, and the, the information that's learned, or is it also the community that comes together and the people that you meet in the learning environment. That's you know, there's so many different components yeah. that, that come together in that moment. And also when we're ready to take that course or when we're ready to open our eyes and understand that there's a much larger uh, system that we can participate in. Yeah. So, hey, thank you so much for sharing about all this because it's, it's not often that I've had a actual permaculture design course teacher on the, on the podcast. So we, you know, that was a nice deep dive. So thank you for that. Oh yeah. So tell me, tell us about Top Leaf Farms. 
So Topley Farms is a company that I started just over a year ago, and it was in response to a um, to a project that I was uh, called into to consult on. Um, a good friend who I actually met in my in my design course um, at Occidental Arts and Ecology was uh, Josiah Kane, who's a um, no, he's in the in the world of living roofs and vertical wall systems. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's he's well known. He's he's done a lot. He has a master's from Harvard, and he's a very good friend of mine. We've had a great relationship and working together and being and and being uh, close. He he was called in to consult on a project. They wanted to do a living roof. They um they wanted to grow food on the roof. They said, how how cool would it be not just to have a living roof? What if we did a, a roof farm? Yeah. And as soon as he heard that part, he said, oh, I should call Ben in. Let's, let's bring Ben in to, to this <laughs> nice. conversation. So through the consultant, through the consultant, I, I got called in to consult on what are, what's the feasibility of turning a living roof into a, into a roof farm? What are all the things you have to consider? Um, and I gave my you know initial design consult um, presentation. And, and, and later the client came back saying, you know, we, we really want to explore this. We really want to dive into this more and see – Let's go through the develop design phase and, and see how this can really work on our buildings. We're committed to any project we have, we want to do a roof farm on. And I was like, that's wow, great. Let's, let's do it. So we, we went through it. I worked with another uh, local grower here, Daniel Miller from Spiral Gardens, and we did the design development phase and, and came up with a, a pretty pretty good design and, and it all looks good on paper, you know, and they bought it and they said, all right, will you install it for us? And <laughs> in order to do that, uh, you know, I needed to um, finally go ahead and, and get my contractor's license. I'd been working with uh, Eric Olson from Permaculture Artisans um, and as a, he's a licensed contractor up in Sebastopol in Sonoma County. And I also had worked for Josiah, um, but I realized like, okay, if I'm going to take this project, I should get my contractor's license. So right. Top Leaf Farms was born with as a licensed landscape contractor to really with this primary client to install this um, 12,000 square feet of rooftop farm that's a monolithic um, intensive system. So it's not much greenhouse, not um, hydroponic or aquaponic, but like a living roof uh, growing medium. Wow. And as as the design development then went into construction documents and through the permitting phase it it took a while um it's still it's it's still parts of that are taking <laughs> its toll on the project um but we are in construction right now of that project in downtown berkeley it's a 72 unit uh residential building geared towards the students at uc berkeley wow and like i said it's uh, 12,000 square feet of, of growing space on, on top the of roof. 16 yeah, it was effectively 16 separate roofs. Um, they designed the building to have a lot of space for outside gathering of the students and, mm-hmm. and, and common space. And so all the hallways are open air. Um, there's a lot of, uh, instead of one big building, it's these separate buildings at four, three, four, and five stories. Um, and, and they're about 30 by 30 each one, so that you can think of them as big uh big planter beds, so to speak. And uh, as we went through the process, we had to drop the um, weight constraints down, and then that changed mm-hmm. the design considerably. So yep. now we're in this hybrid kind of hydroponic uh, growing medium, medium. Yep. Uh, type design. Yeah, so it's – and the, the really really cool thing about this project is that the, the building is supporting the actual farm. So down in the basement, there's a processing area, there's a farm annex, there's a fertigation system that basically – 
comes up to every roof where we can inject our um, our nutrients into the water and then re- and also recycle some of the water um, back into the system. So it's it's very um, integral to the the building itself. So the building is kind of uh, taking on more of a living nature in that way. And, Fantastic. And, yeah, and then the operation of it is the second component, which has been um, where the food is going. And the ideal goal is to hyper-local, ultra-fresh, go to the people that are living right underneath it. So mm-hmm. instead of food miles and food feet, we're actually like almost negative. <laughs> food inches. <laughs> food altitude. Food altitude. Yeah, yeah the, the vertical the vertical feet um, in that regard. So yeah. trying to keep it more like an integrated CSA with the residents of the building nice. and then also local uh, restaurants that will deliver by bike mm-hmm. to the chefs within a three-mile radius of the farm. And the the thing I learned while farming at Esalen, um, where we had 300 people a day eating from that salad bar, was the difference between food that's grown and harvested the same day as opposed to stuff that is even just a day or three days old or stuff we get in the supermarket or even at the farmer's market mm-hmm. sometimes is the right. day before. Yep. Um, the difference is, is outstanding. Broccoli mm-hmm. taste, lettuce taste, completely different. Yeah. And so our 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 goal is to have a... Um, production and distribution of the food without, with as limited fossil fuels as possible and have that happen within the same day. So the food that we harvest that same day going to the mouths that would eat it that same day. And then also uh, keeping the, you know, the, like I said, the footprint down as low right. as possible. Wow. Are you going to have a farm manager? Um, currently, that's me. Um, and then <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of leading the show right now. But uh-huh. I am. Uh, the goal is to have a is to actually build these farms um, to be worker produce worker um, co-ops, worker producer co-ops, Perfect. and and train farmers uh, in the system, and then have them take over the running of them. And yeah. and when I say them, the same client, they have about seven or eight projects in the East Bay, and the second project that then they called me into, which we're in the design phase of, is in Oakland, and it's a, it's about an acre of roof, so it's like 40,000 square feet wow. of rooftop, um, and instead of separate, they're just two big roofs, one's mm-hmm. about 18, and the other one's uh, about the same um, in their in their square footage, and that one has some greenhouses and um, 208 units and also residential units wow. underneath, so it's a much larger project, and the city there is very um, excited and top leaf be able to use the site while they wait for the permit so where they gave they gave us the site to um, put in a nursery and a little seed farm in order um, in order to utilize the space and, and get people excited and demonstrate what we're going to be doing on the roof on the ground level while we're you know a year or two probably before the right. permits actually um, come into play so is this the urban seed project yeah, that's well. You know, the urban seed. You know, farms need seed to yes, that to is grow, the case. <laughs> and and a big part of our production model is in the macro and micro greens and lettuce mixes and kales and things that are somewhat seed intensive. And so, for, you know, I've been involved with uh, growing seed and the organic seed alliance and different um, seed networks and how we can reclaim kind of the seed sovereignty as yes. corporations have been taking more and more uh, ownership of them. And, and someone who you've had on the podcast before, Bill McDormand, mm-hmm. um, 
I took his seed school uh, years ago where we met. And yep, you and I met there. He, uh, yeah, he, he really just kind of, as I know he does with many, um, inoculated my mind with so much information <laughs> and enthusiasm and excitement oh, around my gosh, yes. growing Absolutely. seeds. And and so um, when when we look at the crops that are seed in, intensive, meaning that we're sowing a lot, we're growing, especially micro and macro greens, so much seed is used in that because it's just a oh, sprout. Yeah. How do as a business model, it's like, oh, I want to start producing some of that seed. On a greater context, having having a locally produced seed has its benefits. And then also, what if we're looking at seeds that are adapted to the urban environment, mm-hmm. meaning plants that do well in somewhat shallow soils that are uh, in, com- that that can be interplanted with other species um, have certain resistance to different pests as you know and then also uh the heat island effect that's there there's a number of urban climate um issues uh, yes issues and situations that you know plants adapt to their environment and you take uh you take one variety and you grow it in the urban environment and let it go to seed that seed is going to be adapted to that environment the next generation and so i'm working with don tipping up at siskiyou seeds um to help advise on First, starting with the varieties, and then the the actual science behind the breeding of different varieties, selecting for specific traits to to improve upon them mm-hmm. for the urban environment. Yeah. And our our hope is that we will make an improvement. Sometimes you do this work, and you know, <laughs> down the road you realize you haven't improved it much. It was right. already great to start with. Um, but there's a whole network right now. The Bay Area there's this, there's this real buzz. Of, there's been a buzz for a while around local food, but right now about producing that food within the city and the urban ag. Yeah. Just as you know, and all your listeners are inspired to listen to this podcast. It's like okay, let's start growing food where people actually live. live. Let's start yep. growing it. And and what is that food? And where are those seeds coming from? Because often people ask, like, oh, where's my food coming from? But they rarely ask, where are the seeds coming from? Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of them are coming from big corporations. And even these great seed companies we have, you know, a lot of them are just buying from larger corporations and repackaging them yeah. and selling them. Cause, and that's part of their business model because it's, it's really hard to grow all your own seed and, mm-hmm. and sell it. So we don't have that intention to grow all our own seed, but we do have an intention to start making the – investigation and expansion upon the seed that can be adapted to the urban environment and see and see where that goes i i I love that it you know it kind of adapts seeds will adapt i have a basil plant growing in my backyard now i live in the desert here in phoenix arizona and i'm on my third generation of this basil plant in the back so it grew out seeded grew out seeded and it only gets water once every two weeks Mm-hmm. And so I have a drought tolerant basil that grows in my backyard, uh, which is right. And that, that seed will, will then be more drought resistant. So yep. it's like, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, it's an unknown good benefit, so it, to speak. Yeah, it's exactly. like, oh, I didn't get as much water and here it is. And now I have this, this one actually thrived in this condition. And that's really, you know, as we plant out the big, the big, uh, opportunity and, and, and potential is, is, you know, how, how do we get these other urban farms involved? And, and that's a, a big component of trying to do a project like this is you need yeah. to do trials. So you need to have, you need to have a, a certain variety that you're looking at and then grow it out and really grow it out with people who can observe and notice. And then there's that one 
or a number of them that actually are more heat tolerant. They don't bolt as much. Right. Like, oh, let's get some seed from that. Okay, now we start selecting for for heat tolerance or yep. or drought tolerance or pest resistance and. And then from there, this is the work that really needs to happen because we've inherited such an immense amount of uh, genetics from previous plant breeders and seed keepers, and we've somewhat come complacent like a lot of our society has with many things um, mm-hmm. on, oh, it's just there, great, we got the seeds and we have the food, and now we realize like, oh, we've lost so much of that diversity. Yeah. So now we need to re, as, as Bill would say, rejoin the ritual and re integrate into this sacred art of keeping the seeds alive Um, and you know taking that next step of going like oh can we actually start generating and regenerating new types of of plants from this and that's what Luther Burbank you know was known for and many others and John Navazio and Frank Morton and these like epic characters in our in our (laughs) culture and our network who yeah we're just like they're, they're doing it, and they're the ones, and we all can do it, and there's a way, I think in the urban environment, we have another opportunity where there's a density of people, and like our project in Oakland, it's right on the corner of 51st and Telegraph. You come off the 80, you go on to the 24, you're coming from Berkeley into downtown Oakland. It's this nice. huge thorough-through thorough of, of people and energy, and you know, seeing lettuce a whole you know, crop of lettuce going to seed, you know, many people don't <laughs> even know what lettuce looks like right. going to seed. Um, exactly. I mean, getting into food literacy, some people don't even know lettuce grows on plants. They, yeah. It comes in a bag, some of these kids, you know, <laughs> so it's like, first, here's the plants growing. Next, this is what it looks like going to seed. And, oh, these are seeds that then we can supply to some of these other urban ag projects, but yep. also home gardeners and other people in the in the bioregion here. Um, so that's that's really exciting, and then the start component is once we have the seeds, it's really hard for some people to to start seeds and get them to grow to healthy transplants. Mm-hmm. Um, so they often just go to the nursery store and buy the transplants. But those transplants are also coming from far away, from a seed that's even farther away. So even though they're thinking like, oh, I'm growing my own, the ecological footprint of that transplant is already huge in a, in a certain sense and yeah. it has to be pampered and baby to get it to the nursery and then it's marked up and so here we are doing a direct marketing of and, and production of seed starts for, so people really can just start engaging more with their own food and then we want to grow more at a production scale so that we can make a, a contribution to the food system as opposed to just a, a token towards it Perfect. And yeah. So you're doing a fundraiser on this right now, yes? Yeah. We well the you know the pride the rooftop projects and working with this client on it they're definitely um, supplying the resources to build these rooftop farms. Mm-hmm. However, this inter- interim use of the of the of the lot on in Oakland is something that they came up with saying because they're just so excited about wanting to get something growing, and they realize it's going to be a little while before the mm-hmm. that project gets off the ground. So they gave me the space and said, all right, show us what you can do. And I'm like, great, they're getting the site prepped right now as we speak, and I just need a little extra resources for the um, actual infrastructure, small greenhouse, uh, shipping container for for the tools, and a lot of things that will be portable that we'll be able to move on to the next site and even mm-hmm. up onto the roof. So we're, we put together a barn raiser, which is very similar to Kickstarter, except it's food and farming focused. Nice. And yeah, we're trying to raise raise some resources for the um, for the infrastructure of the farm. 
Perfect. And where do we find out about that? You can go to um, barnraiser.us, and we're one of the or or to our website, um, farmtheroof.com or topleaffarms.com, and there's uh, links to it on that. Perfect. But if you just go to barnraiser, type that in .us, it'll it'll um, show up on actually one of the community picks right now. It's right on the front page. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Good for you. So with this project in Oakland, we not only are we wanting to grow seeds and starts, we also um, we will be growing the, the food, but we also want to educate and train a new crew of urban farmers and seed stewards to help uh, really prepare to meet the challenges of food production in this time of climate change. Because as we know, we're in this incredible time of, of chaos within our climate, and there's, there's going to be a lot of factors that come into growing food, even on the farms, but in the urban, it's going to be changing as well. And so, you know, the, the tools and techniques and strategies, we want to empower and educate people on how to utilize these, um, these skills and, and be, to be able to grow their own food. Perfect. Yeah. So, Farmer Ben, what drives you? What drives me? Well, the reason I do all this, I think, um, has a whole new meaning now with my two-year-old son. I'll bet. I have uh, looking at future generations and what am I having uh, or what am I doing today that really is going to have any meaning in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, before, I think, I realized that my it was in my blood it was generations ago, not too long ago. Um, I come from a farming family. Uh-huh. and. I realized that there was something I just knew felt right as I would put my hands in the earth or as I would engage with growing plants. Mm-hmm. It just felt right, much much more than sitting behind a desk or doing doing work within the unnatural world, so to yeah, speak. Exactly. Uh, but now, you know, I have a I have a son, and I think anyone who's become a parent or is a parent um, can can relate to this new sense of responsibility that there's there's another generation that is going to be inheriting what we have designed and built. And I just want to contribute in a way that can help start to make systematic change in the design that we have. Mm -hmm. And so growing food is something I love doing and how can I contribute to that part of the part of the puzzle in a way that can have um, some influence. And it might just be, you know, uh, the land that I'm able to steward, or it could be uh, a certain seed variety. There's no, I don't have any necessarily uh, ego-driven agenda. Like I want to create this or build some impressive structure like many architects and designers uh-huh. do. But uh, just the idea of, of contributing to the ecosystem in a way that is, is functional and healthy um, is, is something that really rewards me and every you know life is such a gift and every day that we have to to step forward and, and participate is really something I think a lot of us take for granted especially here in in the US where we're we have so much abundance and we live a life of such privilege mm-hmm. we we you know there's the permaculture principle you know least change for the greatest effect and often what we do is we we have the the greatest change for the least effect or yeah. we use we use so much to do so little and you go to a place like Africa where you know they do so much with so little it's like they get $500 to you know redo their whole water system for this village and they do it you know because they're 
you know, they, they're able to, it's a, it's, a, it's a scarcity, but it's also something that they know how to utilize their resources. And when you have so much resources, you sometimes forget how to be diligent with them. So, you know, I, I think as I see myself in this place of privilege with a lot of resources being able to come, I want to put them to their best use. And I think that's one another reason why I decided to um, go with a, a crowdsourcing uh, campaign for this project to see like, okay, who from the community can contribute and how can I use those resources to their best ability and be really specific with them is, is, is really something that I'm, I'm hoping to do and how it can contribute back to the community by, by giving starts and seeds and, and mm-hmm. education to the community in a way that can continue to grow so that $1 will have, you know, tenfold its tenfold impact. Effect, yeah. Oh, there were so many metaphors in that. That was perfect. (laughs) That was perfect. Hey, I'm all about education and I have to know what one book has been most influential in, you know, framing this conversation in your life. Fukuoka's One Straw Revolution was probably a big, uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, he probably, um, yeah, opened up my perspective to the spiritual aspect. And I read that, I read that book shortly after I started farming, um, and I was like, oh, cool read. But then I visited it again, you know, a couple of years later. And, and it's such a great book because you can r- literally sit down and in a couple hours read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's deep and it's contextual and it's, and it's practical. And, um, and it's, it's a book I highly recommend anyone who's interested in farming as a way of also, I don't know, cultivating a certain spirit inside themselves mm-hmm. or they're, they're, they have a calling towards it. This, this kind of puts a perspective on that. And then, you know, of course, Gaia's Garden that, that Toby put together years ago, that was a, that was a really great um, read as well as, as, as putting permaculture into a, into a more tangible um, mm-hmm. aspect. Um, so I'd say, you know, those two books really, uh, really have been helpful um, in, the, in the practical sense. Perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Grow for it. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think, um, Yonto Evans, he's a natural builder up in Oregon, and mm-hmm. I, I sat with him in a natural building colloquium, and, and at one point he said, you know, know enough to start and start, mm-hmm. because we can get, um, you know, we can have this uh, paralysis um, from analysis. Oh yeah. We, Big time. you know, we can, we can get caught in these eddies of conceptual design or assessment or vision. And it's a huge responsibility to, to actually implement something. Mm-hmm. But when we realize that what we're implementing is just one piece of the puzzle and it doesn't have to be finalized, doesn't have to be perfect when we step into it, mm-hmm. then it takes a lot of pressure off. And even if it's simple as, you know, building a bench in your garden, you're like, what do I do with my garden? You get all these ideas, all these things. Well, first, build an observation station, build a bench, and that's going to totally change and influence your design because it's going <laughs> to get you out there and it's going to sit you there. And then it's like, okay, let's just pull these weeds out. And then you just start somewhere. Yeah. You start somewhere and, and you start some seeds and you watch them grow. And before you know it, you're growing a garden. And you're eating out of your and, yard. And, yeah, and if people can start growing and participating in their food system more, I think um, there'll be a whole new relationship and prioritization around food, which is something that we really desperately need. Big time. Big yeah. time. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experiences, Benjamin. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Greg. It's been it's been really great, and um, I, I really I really love the inspiration and the and the insights that you're helping people achieve here through urban urban farming. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, you can go to our website, um, farmtheroof.com, and and uh, or send a send an email to farmtheroof at gmail.com. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.